0: Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of selections, and I use Audible for myself for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and listen to segments and I can listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep. Forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to Episode 73 of History of the Marine Corps, The Banana Wars, Part 2. Our last episode discussed a new U.S. doctrine, and we discussed how it impacted U.S. foreign policy. As a result, the Marines were sent to Latin America, the Caribbean, China, and the Philippines, and many military interventions were predominantly conducted by the Marine Corps. This episode heads to Mexico for the Mexican intervention and also discusses the significant changes the Marine Corps was going through. We end the episode by traveling back to 1899 and we introduce the relationship between the United States and Cuba. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. In February 1913, Francisco Madero, the current president of Mexico, was forcefully removed from office by a coup commanded by General Huertas. Three days after being removed from office, Madero and his vice president, Jose Suarez, were transferred to the main prison for additional protection. When they arrived, the two politicians were taken behind the building. There was a journalist nearby covering the story, and shortly after Madero and Suarez disappeared behind the prison, he heard gunfire. When the reporter approached the vehicles, he found the bodies of Madero and Suarez. The conditions that surrounded the assassination were questionable, and everything pointed towards Huertes for the blame. What brought on more suspicion is that as soon as Madero was killed, Huertes declared himself as president of Mexico. His self-appointment caused a division in the country, and as a result, U.S. lives and property were at risk. The danger to U.S. citizens caused President Taft to take precautions. He began preparations for possible military intervention and American evacuation. The U.S. Army began to prepare for this intervention, and they sent troops to Galveston to await additional orders. The Navy prepared by sending multiple ships to ports on the east and west coast of Mexico. In addition to naval vessels, the Secretary of the Navy ordered the Marine Corps to assemble a brigade made up of 72 officers and 2,097 enlisted. Colonel Lincoln Carmeny commanded this brigade. The Marines gathered at Philadelphia and Norfolk, boarded the Meade and the USS Prairie, and headed to Guantanamo, where they would train until needed. While U.S. forces were preparing for a possible intervention with Mexico, The United States was in the process of a presidential election. Woodrow Wilson would defeat Taft and become the 28th president of the United States. Wilson wanted a more progressive and liberal government, and part of those beliefs extended to his motivation for helping Mexican citizens. Before Wilson was president, the United States recognized revolutionary governments as long as they were able to control the situation after the revolution. Wilson wanted to promote social progress in Mexico, and he created a new policy that refused to recognize Latin American governments that came into power through a coup or anything outside their constitutional means. But Wilson's new policy didn't have the bite the U.S. hoped it would. Cuertas already had control of Mexico, and multiple countries recognized his role as president. Wilson's new policy caused friction between the U.S. and Mexico's new leader. The relationship between the two neighboring countries became tenser when the U.S. started enforcing economic and diplomatic sanctions. In response to the added pressure, the U.S. sent multiple naval vessels to Mexican ports. On April 6, 1914, sailors from the USS Dolphin landed at Tampico for supplies. They were arrested by Huertas' forces and placed in prison. Mexico wouldn't confine the prisoners for long, but when they were eventually released, Huertas didn't offer an apology. The United States demanded a gun salute to the U.S. flag as an expression of regret, but Huertas refused. U.S. diplomats warned him that his lack of apology might result in a possible military intervention, but still Huertas protested. In response to his refusal, Wilson went to Congress and requested authority to use military force to respect the U.S. flag. While Congress was discussing the possibility of a military intervention, reports started to come in that a German ship was carrying a large number of weapons and ammunition for Huertas, and it was headed to Veracruz, Mexico. With the U.S. Navy in the area, they started to plan for the German ship's arrival. This conflict was the priority for the Navy. The U.S. ordered nearly every naval ship in North America to Mexican ports. They even had decommissioned ships placed in active status, and they were sent south. More ships meant more Marines, and the Corps was ordered to prepare troops for action in Mexico. Marines who were currently in the area boarded multiple ships, including the Hancock, Prairie, and the Mississippi, and they all headed to Veracruz. On the east coast of the United States, the Pittsburgh boarded 260 Marines from Mar Island, California, and they headed to San Diego, where they would stay until needed. On April 21st, Rear Admiral Fletcher, who oversaw the ships off Veracruz, was ordered to, quote, take the Customs House immediately and prevent the delivery of arms and munition, unquote. Fletcher sent a message to Mexican authorities, including General Moss, warning them that if any U.S. troops were fired upon, U.S. naval vessels off the coast would return fire. The first troop to land were Marines of the 2nd Regiment, on board the prairie. Closely following their landing were Marines held in reserve in Panama. The Marines pulled into the main pier of the port and met no resistance. They quickly landed and headed for the nearby cable station to secure communications with the United States. Another company of Marines was dispatched and took control of the power plants a few hundred yards west. Colonel Neville, in charge of the Marine Regiment, advanced his main force through a street that traveled between the city and a railroad station. Around noon, the front of his force was fired upon by Mexican forces, but the Marines continued their advance. And by early afternoon, they reached their target and established a strong position west of the city. Marine Major Berkeley's men took the front of the line and were extended from the city's western edge towards the beach. Major George Reed would arrive shortly, and they took over the left flank of the line. Multiple battalions of sailors landed to help the Marines. When they landed, they took over the Customs House, Post Office, and Railway Station. The landing of 500 Marines and 300 sailors caused Mexican forces to react. Mexican cavalry detachments positioned themselves on a sand dune west of the city. The USS Prairie spotted them and fired at the cavalry, which caused the troops to flee. Small attacks on U.S. forces continued, and Captain Bush asked for stronger reinforcements. Additional troops started to land that afternoon, and they were immediately fired upon by Mexican forces. True to his word, the Navy warships immediately returned fire, and the hostiles stopped attacking U.S. troops. By the end of the first day, U.S. forces were able to clear half of the city. Fletcher landed and took control of the troops on shore. Several other detachments of Marines landed as well, and they formed a makeshift 3rd Regiment commanded by Major Catlin. They were combined with the 2nd Regiment, and their task was to clear the area of Mexican troops. This was a difficult job. Most Mexican troops were positioned in buildings and were firing at U.S. forces from windows and rooftops. Marines would receive help from the USS Hancock. On April 22nd, the ship arrived with headquarters 1st Marine Brigade and the 1st Marine Regiment. Brigade commander, Colonel John A. Lejeune, took command of every Marine on Mexican soil. The arrival of additional Marines allowed Lejeune to carry out a more active method of clearing resistant forces. By the end of the second day, Marines cleared three to five blocks along the front lines. The two Marine regiments continued to clear the area the following day. But this wasn't an easy task. Every building needed to be cleared to ensure Mexican troops were removed from the area. Marines confiscated weapons found in possession of Mexican citizens and cleared most of the city by noon. The only area left were the borders of the city. On April 24th, the rest of 2nd Battalion and three artillery batteries pulled in on the Mississippi from Pensacola. They landed and were assigned to the Marines on shore. By the end of Day 4, Admiral Fletcher had almost 6,500 U.S. troops including 96 Marine officers and 2,373 Marine enlisted. Marines would continue to arrive in Veracruz for the next couple of days. Back in Galveston, the Army continued to prepare for an invasion. They were training for several months, and a large force was held near the Mexican boundary, ready for action. On April 23, Army Brigadier General Frederick Funsen moved his troops towards Veracruz. Funson received orders from the War Department to relieve Fletcher and his naval forces. The army arrived on the 28th, and most of his men landed by the 30th. By the time the army landed, the combined marine strength in the area was 3,141 marines. Fletcher formally turned over his command, and with it, all the marines who would now report to Colonel Waller. For months, things were relatively quiet. The Marines continued to protect the brigade's right flank, and they also helped clean up the city, in what is probably the largest police call the Marines have ever conducted. The city had a garbage problem, and the amount of trash on the streets caused a buzzard infestation. Marines would walk to the town and clean up all the trash, which effectively got rid of the buzzards. Mexican troops would eventually leave, and with the United States sanctions on Huerta, Mexico couldn't obtain the financial support needed to run the country effectively. The U.S. supported Carranza, Huerta's main opponent, and he slowly got stronger. On July 15th, the tide shifted, and Huertas no longer had the support he once had. He ended up fleeing the country. Without the threat of Huertas, the U.S. decided to remove their forces. However, another revolutionary leader was rising in the ranks. Pancho Villa. The U.S. would hold off on bringing troops back home until November 23rd. Peace was eventually restored in Mexico, but the apology to the United States, one of the main reasons this conflict kicked off, was never given. For the first 100 years of the Marine Corps' existence, the official strength of the Corps never topped 3,000 Marines. But after the war with Spain and the complications caused by the Monroe Doctrine, the Marine Corps more than tripled in strength by 1916. Most Marines benefited from the additional strength, and many of the senior officers and enlisted received promotions to help lead the new, bigger Corps. This expansion also changed the requirements of the Corps' leaders. Effective leaders needed some type of experience, and the Marine Corps created schooling to help fulfill that requirement. Before an officer was commissioned, he was required to have a formal education. The Marine Corps also developed a system of professional training for officers and some non-commissioned officers. Roosevelt issued an executive order that outlined the physical fitness requirement for officers. I'll post it on historyofthemarinecorps.com on this episode's page if you want to take a look. The addition of military schooling changed the armed force from a simple fighting force to a profession. This era also saw the advancement of new technology and new weapons. Marines weren't limited to the role of a rifleman anymore. The beginning of the 1900s started to see the use of machine guns, more accurate artillery, signal, and specialized units. The Marine Corps changed from mainly a naval warfare unit to more of an independent army. The Marine Corps also laid the groundwork for a marksmanship training program. Which created troops with some of the most efficient marksmanship skills out of every military organization of the time. As the Marine Corps started to change, so did its purpose. The United States established multiple new foreign stations, and Marines were sent to guard these new posts. Honolulu, Hawaii was one of these new duty stations, and 50 Marines were assigned there in March 1904. During the same year, a naval station was established in Samoa. Instead of a detachment of Marines protecting the post, the decision was made to send one senior NCO, and he was placed in command of a local police force, known as the Fida Fida. And again in 1904, 20 Marines led by 2nd Lieutenant Clarence Owen were sent to Midway, and they established the, quote, most lonely and isolated post that the Marines have ever known, unquote. These marines had a unique mission. The Pacific Cable Company was building its line across the Pacific Ocean, and a relay station was being constructed on Midway Island. Their workforce, which was mainly made up of Japanese, were killing the birds on the island for their feathers. Apparently these birds' feathers were very valuable. So the Pacific Company asked the government for help, and the United States sent in the marines to maintain order and prevent the workforce from exterminating the species from the island. Due to the intense seclusion, Marine detachments were rotated regularly. Marines would serve at Midway until 1908, when the line's construction was completed, and the workforce left the island. One of the biggest blows to the Marines' ego happened in 1908. President Roosevelt issued an executive order that described the mission of the Marine Corps, This order was appropriately titled, Defining the Duties of the United States Marine Corps. Roosevelt left out any reference to Marines serving on board ships. Never before this time has the U.S. Navy sailed its larger ships without Marines present. This decision was a shock to both the Navy and the Marine Corps. Marines have always been useful on ships. The two forces were like peanut butter and jelly. They were made for each other. And throughout U.S. history, most naval reports sent to Washington, or between military commanders, praised the Marines. Now, I don't have the exact figure, but when I say majority, I mean high 90 percentile. They didn't just mention Marines, but they praised Marines for their actions. This executive order isn't long, so I'll read it to you now. Quote, In accordance with the power vested in me by Section 1619, revised statuses of the United States, the following duties are assigned to the United States Marine Corps. 1. To garrison the different Navy Yards and Naval Stations, both within and beyond the continental limits of the United States. 2. To furnish the first line of the mobile defense of Naval Bases and Naval Stations beyond the continental limits of the United States. 3 to man such naval defenses and to aid in manning, if necessary, such other defenses, as may be erected for the defense of naval bases and naval stations beyond the continental limits of the United States. Four, to garrison the Isthmian Canal Zone, Panama. Five, to furnish such garrisons and expeditionary forces for duties beyond the seas, as may be necessary in time of peace. Unquote. Although Roosevelt ultimately issued the order, he took his advice from a couple of naval officers. Those officers felt the mission of Marines should change from their outdated responsibility of serving as sharpshooters or operating naval guns to serving the fleet as expeditionary units and used mainly as an amphibious force for military operations. Now this doesn't sound too outrageous today, but back then it was a big deal. And after this order was issued, more than 2,000 Marines were removed from the naval vessels and assigned to shore duty. Except for the naval officers who thought of this, and Roosevelt who issued the order, no one at the time believed that this was a good idea. The American population was adamantly against this change, and Congress took note. During the next naval appropriation bill, They included a stipulation stating that the Marine Corps would not be paid unless they served on naval vessels. The proviso stated, quote, No part of the appropriations therein made for the Marine Corps shall be expended unless officers and enlisted men of the Corps shall serve, as theretofore, on board all battleships and armored cruisers, etc., and detachments of not less than 8% of the strength of the enlisted men of the Navy on such vessels, unquote. About six months after Roosevelt's executive order, all Marines returned back to ships, and multiple new vessels were assigned a Marine detachment. The Marine Corps was going through some massive changes, but before we dig into that, we have a few more events we're going to cover at the same time. Jumping back to New Year's, 1899, Cuba was formally transferred to the possession of the United States, per the treaty with Spain. Immediately after this transfer of power, the United States announced that it planned to make Cuba free, as soon as the new country established a government. Cuba was given three years to prepare and become an independent nation. To account for a possible failure by Cuba, the United States issued the Platt Amendment. This amendment was highly controversial, and it allowed the United States to force its power on the small island even without Cuba being an actual U.S. colony. I'll post this amendment on the website as well, but the third clause sums it up. Quote, That the government of Cuba consents that the United States may exercise the right to intervene for the preservation of Cuban independence, the maintenance of a government adequate for the protection of life, property, and individual liberty, and for discharging the obligations with respect to Cuba imposed by the Treaty of Paris on the United States, now to be assumed and undertaken by the government of Cuba." Despite concerns from Cuban citizens, the Cuban Constitutional Convention added the amendment to their constitution. During the first four years of Cuba's independence, the new country did great, and the United States didn't feel the need to get involved. However, the following years saw an unstable government, and the U.S. stationed forces on the island. Around this time, two political parties were fighting for control in Cuba. The Moderate Party, led by Tomás Estrada Palma, and the Liberal Party, under José Miguel Gómez. After the 1905 elections, the Moderate Party announced that its candidate had been elected. The Liberal Party were more popular at the time, and they weren't happy with the election results. So they revolted in August 1906. The Cuban military wasn't strong enough to stop the revolution. They turned to the United States for help. Insurrectionists were not fans of the United States and responded by attacking U.S. companies, specifically sugar companies in the region. Roosevelt felt that intervention should be a last resort. The attacks on U.S. companies, coupled with the request from President Palma, caused the U.S. to react. The USS Des Moines and Tacoma were sent to Cuba to help. They had very specific instructions and were ordered to only, quote, protect American lives and property if endangered, unquote. To solidify U.S. involvement, the Cuban president stepped down from office. A battalion of Marines was placed on the Dixie and they were sent to the Caribbean. They arrived in Cuba on September 12th and found that Cuba was in a state of emergency. In response to the crisis, Roosevelt ordered all naval ships to prepare to sail for Havana. He also ordered all available Marines be sent to Havana as soon as possible. Within the next 10 days, multiple naval vessels arrived throughout the coast of Cuba. 800 Marines were also established, 400 at Norfolk and 400 at Philadelphia. Marines at Norfolk headed towards Havana on September 16th, and the Marines in Philadelphia left two days later. They were heading there to confront the 8,000 insurgents waiting on the outskirts of Havana. Insurgents started to become more active near the American sugar plantations, and naval forces were authorized to land if threats continued. On September 18th, 50 Marines, commanded by 1st Lieutenant W.E. Parker, landed from the Dixie at Cienfuegos to guard the Constancia Sugar Plantation. The Dixie sent another 25 Marines, commanded by 2nd Lieutenant Shepard, to help guard the Soledad Plantation. Major Catlin, commander of the remaining Marines on the Dixie, which consisted of four officers and 125 enlisted, transferred his headquarters to the Hormiguero Sugar Plantation. Without any Marines on board, the Dixie left the area. A week later, insurgents changed their target to the Cuban Central Railroad Station. A landing force consisting of four officers, 22 Marines, and 64 sailors from the Marietta was sent to protect the railway. With the increased activity, the military intervention seemed unavoidable. The Marines and sailors are now on shore, and Taft suggested to Roosevelt that the Navy should send in more ships to help and troops should be mobilized for active intervention. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll head to Cuba. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is Thomas Jefferson and the Tripoli Pirates, The Forgotten War That Changed American History by Brian Kilmeade and Don Yeager. I've said it a few times on the show, but the late 1700s and early 1800s are probably my favorite time in Marine Corps history, and the Barbary Wars is one of my favorite times in that era. How can you go wrong with Marines versus Pirates? This book dives into the relationship between the United States and the four Barbary states. The Navy and the Marine Corps have some fantastic stories, and the authors do a great job laying out some of the battles. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out Corps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.